All right, Romans 15. I will read the first six verses. I was going to do all the way through 13. And then I said, nah, I think I'll just stop at six. (laughs) So we're going to read the first six verses, and that will be what we study this morning. So Romans 15. Paul writes, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just a little recap over what we looked at last time. Uh, We saw Paul address this, he's still continuing this discussion between the weaker and the stronger brother, particularly talking to the stronger brother in the faith to put up with and to bear with the weaker brother, not to put a stumbling block or cause of, uh, for sin in your brother's way. So in other words, you're not to use your liberty in Christ as a way to sort of make the weaker brother sin. Rather, the stronger brother ought to pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. So we need to work toward building up the body. I and mean, Paul's going to continue that in this passage as well. But the idea here is we don't tear down. Okay, You don't use your freedom as an excuse to look down upon the weaker brother, to sort of do things that would cause them to wound their conscience. You want to build up. We need to do the things that build up. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be the one place in all of this sin-cursed world where love is actually practiced. If we can't have peace in the church, how can we ever hope to have peace in the world, in the, in the communities in which we live? If the church is bickering, then what hope do we have for the rest of the world? Right? So then concluding in verses 20 and 23 of chapter 14, Paul tells us then, whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, if you cannot do an action confidently in faith, then it might be a sin for you. Now, it may not be a sin, but the point is, why take the risk, right? If, you, if you're not sure, you're probably better off erring on the side of caution than saying, well, I don't know, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. It's a dangerous practice to go against your conscience. We talked about the conscience, I don't know if it was last time or maybe the time before, but the conscience is sort of like your smoke detector. It's sort of like your alarm system. So it warns you when you're going against something that violates your own internal moral code. Now, as human beings created in the image of God, we have the law of God planted within our hearts. That is our base moral code. But because of the fall, we don't follow that code anymore, and we sort of try to override it with our own codes, if you will. So if you go against something that violates your conscience, you get a, you get a little, you feel guilty. You know, all these feelings you get in your heart and your and in your mind that you feel like you're doing something wrong. And usually it's a dangerous thing to go against your conscience because, you're, like I said, that's the system that warns you. What you want to do is not violate your conscience, but you want to inform your conscience according to the Word of God. So then how do we help the weaker brother or sister? Well, we strengthen their faith. If whatever does not come from faith is sin, 
then we need to strengthen the faith of the weaker brother so that they have a conscience that is well informed by the Word of God and then they can live a life in true freedom that we have in Christ. So now as we go into our passage this morning, as I I was kind of hinting at earlier, really at the end of verse 13 of chapter 15, really marks the end of Paul's practical teaching in this letter. And we'll cover this section, these 13 verses, in two lessons. But in verses 1-6, through we're still looking at the issues here of Christian liberty. But Paul wraps it up by now looking at the example of Christ. He's going to put Christ forward as an example for us to follow in how to exercise our liberty. If you want to know how to get along in the church, how to get along with other fellow believers, look to Christ to see how He did it. We've mentioned this before, love. The idea of love is giving of yourself to meet the needs of another, even at great cost to yourself. And we see this kind of love modeled in the Scriptures. And Paul's going to mention how the Scriptures are an example for us to follow too, that the Scriptures were given to us as well. We see this, we've looked at this before. The ladies, we're going to be looking at this through the book of Ruth. But the, the chesed, the love that Boaz shows to Ruth and Naomi is the same kind of love that Christ models to his people. Or the good Samaritan, the love that the Samaritan showed to the injured Jew on the road where the Levite and the priest and the scribe and the Pharisee would not do that, would not care for him because they were fearing their own religious, their own ceremonial cleanness. That Samaritan typically the bad guy in Jewish literature, (laughs) that Samaritan was the one who actually practiced love. This is the Christ-like love modeled for us in the pages of Scripture. It's the love that ought to govern our own interactions within the church. And again, I'm going to keep hammering this point. Christian liberty is not a license to trample over the sensitive conscience of your brother or sister in Christ. Because that kind of attitude betrays A mindset is antithetical against the mind of Christ. That is not the mind of Christ. If you're like, well, I'm going to exercise my liberty come hell or high water, that's not what Christ did. (laughs) Imagine if Christ said, I'm going to exercise my prerogatives and my privileges come hell or high water, what what kind of position would we be in? We'd be going to hell in a handbasket, right? (laughs) That's exactly what would be happening. So that's what we're going to see here as Paul calls us, calls on us, I should say, to consider the example of Christ. So here in verse 1, we see is the responsibility now of the stronger brother in the faith in verse 1, where Paul says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So that phrase there, we ought to bear, that word ought, ophelo, implies obligation. This is your obligation for the one who is stronger in the faith. You have an obligation, a duty to perform. And that obligation is to bear with the scruples of the weak. Now, I'm going to pick on the New King James Version here. (laughs) Because that word scruples is, quite frankly, a, a... I don't want to say awful, but it's, it's not a great translation of the word. In fact, if you have the New King James, you probably even have a footnote there for scruples that says weaknesses. If you look down in the bottom of the page, it says weaknesses. 
That is a much better word. I don't know why they didn't go with weaknesses or infirmities. It, it translates the word asthenema, which means weak or feeble. You get the word asthma. You can almost kind of hear the word asthma from that, that, that word. And other translations, ESV and the NIV have failings. Christian Standard Bible has weaknesses, which is what we see in the New King James footnote. King James has infirmities. So now I get what they're trying to do with scruples because the context of the passage is people who have a scruple against doing something or another, against eating meat or against, uh, you know, uh, what was the other one? Eating meat or whatever it was. They have this, this scruple. I can't eat meat because of my conscience. I get what they're trying to say, but I think the word weakness has a much better uh, idea, weakness of mind, if you will. All that to say, the point being is that the stronger brother, the one whose conscience is informed by the Word of God, is obligated to bear with the weaker, uninformed conscience of his or her brother or sister in Christ. Now this goes beyond just tolerating this. Not tolerance like you see in the world today. Tolerance means I put up with, I, I recognize that we disagree, I'm just going to tolerate this. It goes, it's beyond that, it's beyond going along to get along. It's, this isn't, well, okay, I don't agree, so you do you and I'll do me. That's not what this is. The idea here is just as you wouldn't let someone who is elderly care, carry a heavy load, right? You know, I mean, you go to Brown's, right? And whenever you go to, gro- you know, to buy your groceries at Brown's, and you, you've got a lot, they have someone there that loads up this cart and will take it to your car. You wouldn't expect someone who is in their twilight years to have to carry all of those bags by themselves to their car. We don't let them do that. We should not let weaker Christians with scruples to fend for themselves. That's the point here. We need to bear with them. Here are some other scriptures we can consider to speak on this point. We saw this a little bit earlier in Romans 14.1. Receive the one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Or Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And the idea here that Paul wants to sort of ingrain in our heads is that the weaker brother in the faith is sort of like a wounded comrade, okay, a wounded fellow soldier in a battle. And what is the motto of the SEALs or the, the Marines? or whatever? We don't leave our wounded on the battlefield. We carry them. We, we make sure we try to bring them to safety. That's the idea. We don't leave our wounded. We bear them up. We don't just tolerate them. We support them. We uphold them. We build them up. Our obligation as Christians and as those who have liberty of conscience is to bear with our weaker brother, not to please ourselves. I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Your Christian liberty is not for you. It is not for you to do whatever you please. 
If you think the Christian life is for you to exercise your freedom in Christ, to please yourselves, you don't have the mind of Christ. We're going to look at this a little more as we go further, but the principle is clear. Your liberty is not for your benefit. Right? Jesus Christ did not live for you. He did not die for you. He was not raised for you so that you can go on and just do whatever you want and please yourselves with your freedom. Again, remember, love is giving of yourself to meet the needs of another. That is the mind of Christ. That is what is Christ-like. Now Paul goes further, a step further in verse 2. Instead of pleasing ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Leading to edification. So rather than using your liberty to, in Christ to please ourselves, we're to please our neighbor. We are to do what is for his own or her own good. And this is what we have been seeing all throughout Romans 14 and now Romans 15. The call to sacrifice our liberty for the sake of our weaker brother. And we've, as we've been looking through Romans 14 and now Romans 15, we've been sort of looking at parallel passages in 1 Corinthians 8. So it might be helpful to reinforce some of that thought in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. You don't need to turn there. You can jot this down. Um, but, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is saying there, look, if... If I exercise my liberty and it's causing my brother to sin, I would rather not exercise my liberty. I would rather willingly sacrifice that for the sake of my brother. I don't want him to sin. So I'm going to withhold my exercise of my liberty so that he will not sin. Or in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 10.24 Let no one seek his own but each other, sorry, each the other's well-being. Or 1 Corinthians 10.33 Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Again, Paul here, in order to save some... (laughs) Right, in order to save some people, foregoes his own liberty. If you remember in the book of Acts, right, um, Paul was coming home. He's coming back to Jerusalem. It's near the end of the book of Acts. He's got Timothy with him, who is not a Jew. He is a Greek, and he's about to go into the synagogue to finish some form of ritual cleansing that he was doing. And he brings Timothy in, and he, le- he lets Timothy, he says, you need to get circumcised before you come in here because you're going to offend the Jews. Now, Timothy didn't have to do that, <laughs> right? He didn't have to do that. Paul didn't have to do these things. He did these things in order to win some. He would gladly forego his liberty in order to win some and strengthen the brethren. In other words, Paul's goal was not his own liberty, his, not his, the exercise of his liberty, Paul's goal was to build the kingdom of God, to be a useful servant, to build on the foundation of Christ. Now, we need to be careful, of course, and not let the church be governed by the scruples of the weaker brother. We don't want to have a sort of a tyranny of the minority, if you will. 
right? You know, you get the squeaky people who complain all the time. It's like, and then you end up sort of, you know, giving into them all the time because they're constantly complaining. We don't want to have to be ruled by those scruples. The idea, though, is we have to try to bring them up. Again, remember what Paul said in Romans 14.3, the temptation of the weaker brother is to judge the stronger brother. The temptation of the stronger brother is to despise or look down upon the weaker brother. So the stronger brother will appear as an antinomian to the weaker brother. Right? The weaker brother has these scruples. He sees the stronger brother doing things that go against those scruples. Therefore, you must be an antinomian. You must not like the law of God. And then the other side of that coin is the stronger brother looks at the weaker brother and sees what? Legalist, right? <laughs> you, you are a legalist. You're trying to bind my conscience. Now, the stronger brother is to seek the good of his neighbor leading to edification. That word edification just means to build up. You edify. You have an edifice. It's a building. The word comes from a word in Greek that means the building of a home. And really, that's if you think about the pictures of the church that we see in the Bible, the, the church is seen as a building. It is seen as a temple. And we are living bricks in that temple being raised up as a temple unto the Lord. Any Pink Floyd fans here? I know you probably would be a Pink Floyd fan from the 70s, right? What's that song, right? Another brick in the wall, right? You know, we are all just another living brick in the wall of the church, which is the temple of Jesus Christ, if I can do that. It is counterproductive to the goal of the church to tear down the work of God than to build up the church, particularly just to exercise your freedom, right? I said it last time. It's like, you don't want to build, uh, tear down the church just so you can have a steak, okay? <laughs> or in our context, just so you can drink a beer or watch a particular type of movie or whatever. That is not worth the effort. And that's exactly what Christ did. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. So you got, we're, we're to bear with the weak and not please ourselves. We're to please our neighbors. And then in verse 3, because Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, now there's that quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 69.9. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Jesus didn't look out for his own prerogatives. Rather, he provides the ultimate example of one who did not please himself. One who did not do what he felt like doing. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, John 4.34 says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Now, if anyone had the right to please himself, it would be Jesus. If you will, keep your finger here, and then let's turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, I'm going to read the first 12 verses here. So it's to, to the chief musician set to the lilies. That sounds pleasant. A Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. 
O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So there's the citation. And if you remember, this is also quoted in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple there. His disciples remembered later this text and referred it to Jesus. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gates speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Bless you. And we'll stop there. I am the song of the drunkards. In other words, I'm the song drunk people sing. <laughs> you could turn back to Romans. But in other words, Jesus was so consumed with the Father's will and his mission that he didn't care about himself or his own reputation. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. So are we, is that the same goal that we have here for the church? Are we consumed with zeal for the welfare of the weaker brother that we forego our own liberty for his or her sake? Because that's what Jesus did. That is what Jesus did. Jesus went to the cross rather than seek his own pleasure. In Matthew 26, as he's praying in the garden, praying to God for, you know, right before he goes to, to the crucifixion, he says in verse 39 of Matthew 26, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you, as you will. In other words, he did not please himself. If Jesus were to please himself, he wouldn't go to the cross, right? I mean, that's simply put. That was what he wanted to do. <laughs> but not as I will, as you will. And he did it for the joy of redeeming his bride. Hebrews 12.2 says, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, everything Christ went through in this life, in his, in his life, his 33 years of existence, his living and walking this veil of tears, his going to the cross, being subjected to all kinds of punishment and wickedness and torture and all that stuff. And then not only that, but then bearing the weight of our sin guilt, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, all of that was for the joy that was set before him. So he did, he, for, he, he let go of his privileges, let go of his prerogatives for that purpose in order to redeem his bride. Now Paul goes on in verse 4, after quoting Psalm 69.9, Paul goes on to say that the Scriptures have always put this example forth of letting go of your freedom for the weaker brother. Romans 15.4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So here we see the example of the Scriptures. Paul here is telling this group of first century Christians in the church of Rome this group of Jew and Gentile mixed together in this church that the Old Testament was written for their learning. Now, the Old Testament may not have been written to them, but the Old Testament was written for them. 
And this puts forth a very valuable lesson for us today. The Old Testament is just as much our history as it is the history of the Jewish people. So everything from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Malachi, Malachi, <laughs> using the Italian, the Italian pronunciation, <laughs> the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi. So everything from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi is for us, has value for us, for our instruction. The promise made to Abraham was that all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy, the second letter, and told him in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, all Scripture, how much Scripture? All of it is written, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul says all Scripture, he's primarily referring to the Old Testament because at the time of writing 2 Timothy, that was all they had. But it also applies to all Scripture written after that point, the entire New Testament as well. All of it is useful. All of it is profitable for instructing the people of God so that we will reach maturity. That's what Paul means there by perfection. Spiritual maturity. Now, the particular principle Paul is drawing our attention to is this. The principle of sacrificing one's rights for the sake of another. We see this example in Genesis 13. I was going to turn there and read it, but I'm not going to. Just for the sake of time. But the story in Genesis 13 is this, right? You've got Abram and you've got Lot, right? And they're in the land there between the, the, what would eventually be the cities of Bethel and Ai. Okay, so in that region there. And their, their flocks and their herds have gotten so big and there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. And Abram turns to Lot and says, why should we quarrel? We are relatives. You're my nephew. So here we go. So they go up to a hill and they look and he says, here, you can either take the land of Canaan or you can look at the, the valley of the Jordan where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And he gives Lot the choice. He says, you choose. And he looks at the valley of Jordan and sees Sodom and Gomorrah and the land is well watered. It, looks, it reminds him of the Garden of Eden, it says. It's a well watered garden like the Garden of Eden. And then the, the land of Canaan, which I'm sure is okay, but it, it's not a well watered garden like the Garden of Eden. So Lot looks and is like, I think I'll choose the well-watered garden <laughs> like the Garden of Eden. So he goes there. And Abram's like, okay, I'll go and be in the land of Canaan. And then God goes on and renews the promise with Abram. The point is, is that Abram relinquished his right to that valley. He was the elder. He was the uncle. Lot was his nephew, the younger. It should have been the other way around. Abram should have said, I'm taking that, and then you can have the leftovers. But Abram gives that up. And gives it up to Lot. That's the idea here. Of course, another example we can see in the book of Ruth. Ruth gives up her entire family, her way of life, all you know, her everything to be with Naomi. And then Boaz gives up his ability to utilize the land that Naomi owns in order to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So he gives up himself to meet the needs of another. Now, I remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells those two disciples on the road to Emmaus that everything, all the scriptures were written 
about him, right? He is the center point of all the scriptures. It's all about Jesus. The inspired word of God, Bible, this, points to the incarnate word of God. So thus, this principle of sacrificing one's privileges for the weaker brother is one of many lessons we see in scripture. And when David says what he says in Psalm 69.9, this points forward to Christ, as we already saw. It was used in John 2 to point forward to Christ. It's used here in Romans to point forward to Christ. And then when we, like Christ, bear the reproaches of those who reproach God, we are following in the footsteps of Christ. And that's what Paul now urges us in verses 5 and 6 to follow the example of Christ. He says a word of prayer where he says, Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first and foremost, notice how Paul words his prayer where he says, May the God of patience and comfort grant you. Everything Paul has said here since Romans 14.1, really, if you want to push a point, everything all the way back to Romans 12.1, it's something the Father must grant us through His Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ, His Son, we can hope then to live out this principle of sacrificing our liberty for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. And specifically here, what Paul prays is to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ. Now, if you turn back just a couple of pages to Romans 12.3, I'll have you turn there since it's only a couple of pages back. Romans 12, verse 3 says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, if you remember when we looked at that, right, the phrase there to think highly is to be high-minded. And then to be sober-minded is to be right-minded. And we said, don't be high-minded, be right-minded. And here, Jesus or Paul exhorts us to be like-minded. Okay? Be like-minded. So don't be high-minded, but be sober-minded. The phrase here that he's saying here is conveying this idea of harmony or unity. The church of Jesus Christ is to be like-minded. Not, uni- not the same, okay? Not the same, but unified in spirit and purpose and goals. And then according to that, that very important phrase there at the end of that verse, according to Christ Jesus... Now, I know that there are some within reform circles, if you say, you know, WWJD, they'd be like, ugh! <laughs> you can't do that. That's a bad thing. WWJD is a bad thing. Some in reform circles. Not everyone, but some. I understand where they're coming from when they say that, because when you say, what would Jesus do? You're, you're basically saying, you need to copy everything Jesus does. And Jesus went to the cross. He bore the sins of the world. You can't do that. I I get that. Yeah, I can't multiply fish and loaves. I can't walk across the water. I can't heal the sick. But I can follow Jesus' example in other things. Like Paul tells us here. Because I don't know what according to Christ Jesus means other than 
what would Jesus do? You know, you need to, to, to model your life, accord, you know, be like-minded according to Christ Jesus. I don't know what else that means except what would Jesus do. Now, I will have you turn to Philippians 2, please. Philippians chapter 2, it's just some, some distance to the right. <laughs> turn right. If you hit Colossians, you've gone too far. If you hit... Ephesians, you haven't gone far enough. If you hit Philippians, you're just right. (laughs) Sort of like baby bear. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes there, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Same word. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Very similar to what Paul has been saying all throughout Romans 14 and 15. You know, give up your liberties, be of like mind, love one another, don't think more highly of yourself. Look out for the interests of others, all of these things. Now, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think the same way Jesus thought. How did Jesus think? Well, I'll tell you, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, note the similarities of that passage to what we see here in Romans 15. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Being of one accord. Let nothing be done from selfish ambition or conceit. Look out for the interests of others. Or as Paul is saying in Romans 15, don't live to please yourself. Build up your brother. Love your brother. And then that passage gives us the ultimate example of humility, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he gave up all of the privileges of deity and prerogatives of deity to redeem us. He set that aside. He doesn't, become, he doesn't be, not become God, or he doesn't unbecome God, but he sets aside the prerogatives of the use of his deity to come down. He humbles himself. He became lowly for us. He went to the cross for us. He is our example that we should follow as we seek to live in unity and harmony in the church. And then finally, the reason for all of this in verse 6 is that, sorry, you can turn back to Romans 15. <laughs> Romans 15, verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, unity, one mind, one mouth as a body of Christ, all of us in unity and harmony, together glorifying God, 
by the proper use and exercise of our freedoms and liberties. Glorifying Christ. When the church is unified, living in harmony, looking out for the weaker brother, seeking to build up, not tear down, we bring glory to God. And that's the very purpose for which we were created, right? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So there we go. Verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Next time, Lord willing, we will look at verses 7 through 13.